Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for coming on and doing this episode with me. I'm really excited to get into this conversation and really introduce everybody to what you do, what your passions are, all of those good things. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with just tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. Right. Well, um, I initially worked um, as a as a psychiatric nurse 35 years ago, and I was um, in what we called a locked ward back then, which, which were deemed um, uh, or sort of housed people who were deemed either a danger to themselves or a danger to other people or both. So it was, it was quite intense, and, uh, and I was fascinated by the idea that we could help people, but not necessarily purely through drug treatment. You know, so I became interested in psychotherapy. I, I, I retrained as a hypnotherapist and um, also did psychotherapy training and sort of meld the two together using hypnosis and, and um, other therapeutic techniques and um, eventually started teaching hypnotherapy and psychotherapy um, on workshops all around the UK. Then we began, uh, me and my business partner, uh, started teaching on a diploma course at Brighton University on the south coast of, of uh, England. And we did that for 10 years. And um, I, I was also doing training for other companies, uh, big seminars on self-esteem and bullying in the workplace. And um, we came online in 1999 and set up a, um, a site called Hip- uh, sorry, com. Um, in 2003, so that's been running 20 years, and we've done we do lots of online training now as well. So I'm, I guess I'm a kind of uh, therapist slash trainer, and, and and also I, I write uh, a weekly blog as well. So I've done 500 of those <laughs> <laughs> on all kinds of topics. Now I want to ask you because I know you said you were trained in hypnotherapy. Is is hypnotherapy? I'd love to get into that in a little more detail, what that means and what it does. And is it something people can do at home? Because I feel like I've seen these hypnosis at home courses or programs. Is that realistic? So certainly doing this on your own can be can be powerful. Ideally, you, you'd want to see someone who's skilled in, in therapeutic technique and hypnosis. But yeah, certainly people use it for themselves. And, and I did that myself for public speaking. You know, Initially, I, I was uh, reticent or nervous and anxious public speaking. And after using self-hypnosis, I found that I could no longer be nervous, you know, for better or for worse, for the people listening. I could no longer get worried about it. And so it's a sort of happy limitation. So you can certainly turn things around for yourself. Yeah. Is there a certain state of mind that you really have to be in? I'll tell you the correlation I'm making in my brain and where my line of questioning is coming from. I think of like EMDR, which is uh, Mm. trauma therapy, right? And there are certainly EMDR you definitely want to do with a professional. There also are courses and modalities that you can use at home. 
I have done both. And I'm a believer that my really major work, certainly in my beginning, my big trauma work had to be done with a professional, certainly to learn uh-huh. and understand the process because it's not something that you just go into and it works, right? It's like you have to have a certain level of buy-in, so to speak. And you have to be in a certain state of mind for it to be really successful. Is hypnosis the same? Yes. Uh, you you, um, you know, we, we can distinguish, distinguish hypnosis from trance state. So hypnosis will be using a therapeutic trance in order to affect beneficial change, whereas a trance state can happen quite um, naturally, you know, and in fact happens in addictions and, and trauma as well. You know, so for example, if, if we think about the stage hypnotist, the stage hypnotist might take someone who's extremely gifted hypnotically and then they may give them, uh, focus their attention, narrow their attention right down, then give them a hypnotic suggestion or a post a hypnotic suggestion that every time they say a certain word, the, the hypnotist, then the subject will do something bizarre. Okay, so in psychology we call that a pattern match, you know, or it's just uh, an external stimulus produces um, an internal response through a trigger or a pattern match. Okay, so this happens when people are traumatized. I, I see lots of traumatized people with PTSD and, and veterans and so forth. The, the trauma happens in exactly the same way that uh, the, the stage hypnotist post-hypnotic suggestion works. So, for example, I worked with a guy who'd been in Helmand province in Afghanistan, and his friend had been killed by a roadside bomb. And back in England, he uh, couldn't walk by the side of the road. He had to walk in the middle of a road, which is obviously quite dangerous, because he was so traumatized, and every time he heard fireworks there'd be a pattern match, a post-hypnotic uh, suggestion, if you like, from the environment to go back and, and hypnotically regress to his time in Helmand. So he was no longer in England, back in Af- Afghanistan. So you see the, the brain is working in that trance-like way. But we wouldn't, you know, so, so it would be a, rather than just a cognitive condition, it would be a hypnotic condition or, you know, post-hypnotic condition. This is why CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, seems to be 50% more effective when you use hypnosis with it because um, people often know why they have a problem or know what thoughts they're having but they can't help it because of the emotional the the hypnotic emotional trance effect of the state that they're in so and and i've totally forgotten the initial question oh yes you so you'd have to be (laughs) um i sort of tranced out for a moment there you'd have to be in the um yeah, you have to capture somebody's attention and interest in order to to hypnotize them. Yeah, and is hypnosis or hypnotherapy the same thing or similar to what we hear subliminal messaging and those sort of things? Are those related? Um, you, you're uh, yeah, yeah. Certainly, the conscious mind can really be kind of removed from the process sometimes. So, I mean, I, I, I've had people who think they weren't in hypnosis because they could hear everything that I said and and recall a lot of it or they think they weren't in hypnosis because they couldn't recall anything I said you know (laughs) and so they thought they must have been asleep um but so so we we can use the hypnotic medium in all kinds of ways and certainly subliminal messaging 
can be effective, but the senses have got to pick up the the subliminal subliminal message. You know, it's got to be available to some form of consciousness, but perhaps not this sort of very aware consciousness. Consciously, we can be aware of about 40 aspects of, of reality at one time, whereas unconsciously, we can pick up millions of, of impulses that never make it to consciousness, but can still affect our behavior. Certainly, sometimes, you know, I, I remember a person, a client who was extremely anxious about something. And I told them when they were deep in hypnosis, I told them a story about a little anxious monkey and a wise owl that sort of flies over the scene and kind of calms everything down. And she said that later on, in a subsequent session, she said that um, she'd grown really fond of owls, you know, since our session, but she didn't know why. She had a picture of an owl on her on her wall now. And whenever she looked at it before the day started, she felt an immense sort of feeling of calm and wisdom and, and so forth. Okay, but she didn't remember consciously the story. So, um, which is which is okay because you know we we don't have to analyze everything. We can try to analyze everything. But it's impossible to analyze all experience, you know, because so much experience happens beyond, below, or outside of conscious awareness. Well, and the brain is so complex, like it's really hard to try to analyze every little thing and figure out why and how and where and how to change it, because we don't even have the realm mm. of knowledge to do so, really. Well, that, that, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it's as complex as... as anything else or perhaps everything else in the universe. So to, you know, say that we understand exactly how everything works, you know, take placebo effect, for example, you know, it, it's so well recognized that drug companies and, and researchers uh, have to allow for the placebo response in their research of a new drug, you know, and um, certainly antidepressants ha have a huge placebo response, you know, um, and, and other sort of psychotropic medication as well. But it's still not fully understood exactly how the placebo response works because it's been found that even when people know it's a placebo, <laughs> it can be effective. It's still effective, you know? right? So, so it, well, yeah, you know, I'm giving you a placebo. You know, it's a placebo, and it can still help you, which is kind of and it kind of confounds the idea that we have to believe in the placebo for it to work. So it's still quite mysterious, even even that, you know. But it's it's such a well observed phenomenon that researchers and scientists have to take account for it in, in all the research that they do. Yeah. Take a moment and explain to the audience what the placebo effect is for anyone listening that doesn't know. Okay. Well, the placebo response is the, um, and, and again, it could work like a hypnotic suggestion. You're rather than being given an active medication, you're given an inert substance that you believe is an active medication or as I just said, even if you don't. and that, but, it, but it then brings about a sort of physical change in you. So they found that even, so the more extreme the placebo, the greater the ritual of the placebo, if you like, the greater the effect. So they found that doing knee surgery, but without actually doing surgery, just opening up the knee, would have a big impact on people with arthritis. You can, you're no longer allowed to do that. This, this research was done uh, quite a few decades ago. So you can't you can't do placebo surgery anymore, but it seems to be even more effective than just giving people a dummy pill, you know. And and it's 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 obviously the healing powers of the mind are having an effect on the body. So it's not just that the person has a different orientation psychologically, but the psychological orientation is affecting directly the body and the way the body heals. 
You also have the nocebo effect, which is the evil twin of placebo, in which someone uh, believes they're getting ill or, or things are getting worse, and the belief or the focus of the mind actually brings about that as well. The worsening of the symptoms. Yeah, exactly, which is, which is why therapists need to know about language and how to use positively orientated language, and also medical practitioners do as well, because they could inadvertently medically hex, as they call it, by giving, offering a, uh, a nocebo, the opposite of a placebo, to a patient by using language which is, is perhaps insensitive or you know, ill-advised. Right. So you got your beginning in your career in a lockdown psychiatry hospital, correct? Yeah. And what was your experience there that really molded you to, to go down this path that you're on now? Um, I, I think um, sympathy. I remember lots of the people were very sort of tragic, you know, lots of the patients. And I felt that the system was a very sort of revolving door. So if they did get out, they'd come back in again. And it, it, was, it wasn't really looking at their lives or their beliefs or the, the hopes or the disappointments, but the neurochemistry. And I recall we were in the, there was a sort of garden area and we were having a, a barbecue and there was music playing, and I suddenly felt incredibly sad that I, I don't, you know, I just had the sadness wash over me because we were all, they were all sitting there, and, and it was it just seemed very sad. And I kind of thought there's got to be there's got to be a better way to help people. So yeah, so so that was really the sort of springboard and event. But it's a sort of job that I felt I couldn't do for long term, you know, because you know it, it wasn't it wasn't particularly healthy or well paid either. And I I had a young family at the time, so, so yeah. Yeah, this this kind of work is challenging. It's the same thing with addiction, you know, where people are relapse. A lot of people relapse many times before their recovery actually sticks. It can be really challenging. Yeah. There are almost always, of course, you know, co-occurring mental health struggles, addiction, uh, anxiety, depression, are pretty normal. ADHD is pretty normal for people with addiction issues because it's the same area of the brain, right? All that wiring is intermingled. Um, and it can be really hard work to do on a long-term basis. And I would think even more on the psychiatric side of it because the system is so challenged as a whole mm -hmm. and our methods for treating people are but are challenged. I mean, it's not a whole person approach, I don't believe. Well, well that, that's true. You know, you, you can get into the situation of, of the physician or, or the psychiatrist as, as seeing the patient, not as a patient, but as a, as a disease with an inconvenient patient attached to the disease, you know. So, so they're focusing on disease. I'm not really interested in you. I'm interested in the disease. I mean, there, there's lots of wonderful physicians and psychiatrists, of course, but that is a danger that that can happen. We, we don't actually look at the person in the round. You know, as, as far as um, addiction is concerned, and um, you know, escaping and coming back to the addiction, we could almost use the analogy of an abusive relationship. You know, that the addiction somehow convinces the, the addict um, that they can't live without them. You know, even though they're abusing the person, the alcohol is abusing you, or, or the cocaine, or, or shopping addiction or whatever it is, um, you can't live without me, you know, and without me, you're nothing. And I'm familiar. So at least I'm familiar to you. So the person tries to escape 
like an abusive relationship. They get up courage, they escape, but then they go back again, you know, because they're having a bad day and the, the it's almost as if the addiction calls them up and, and sweet talks them again, you know, and, and before you know, they're back with the addiction again. And it's like a, a couple, a sort of dysfunctional couple until the person learns to live beyond the addiction. And this is actually an analogy. It's the seduction of comfort, right? And the addiction offers that in only in an instant gratification kind of way. But it does offer that comfort. And Mm. when you are faced with an overwhelming situation or overwhelming life, overwhelming feelings, and you don't have another solution... Mm -hmm. I think human nature, you will always default to the comfort that yeah, you know yeah, will be there, yeah. even if it's unhealthy. And, and it's escapism, you know, because um, it, it, it's funny, you know, we, we, people talk about mindfulness and, and, you know, living in the moment and, and just being in the moment, which can be used well, can be really healthy. Um, but also addiction does that as well, in, in that you can forget about the past, you can forget about long-term consequences, certainly. And you can just be in the here and now. So you're escaping from perhaps an unpleasant situation. You know, so so when treating addictions, I like to look at two things, really. I like to look at basic or primal emotional needs. You know, so we all have needs to feel safe and secure, to feel connected to other people, for intimacy, for, to, for meaning and purpose and goals in life, uh, for privacy um, you know, uh, for friendship and uh, self-respect and self-esteem. You know, these are all sort of basic um, needs that all of humanity shares. And then we think, well, what needs isn't the person meeting that they're trying instinctively to meet through the addictive pattern? You know, so it could be uh, safety when people first start drinking if they're very shy. If you feel, if you feel very shy and socially anxious, you don't feel safe socially. But alcohol seems to you know comes along and charms you and hoodwinks you and sweet talks you into pretending to be the solution to that you know and for a while it is but then it has diminishing returns and then it starts to steal more than it gives it's like a a charming con man will come along and they will give you genuine things to start with you know it's not that they it's not that they're boring or dull or not exciting you know and aren't giving you rewards but then bit by bit and not immediately they start taking much more than they give, you know, and, and that's exactly how an addiction works. So, so, so that's one aspect. We need to look at the basic needs of the person. What do they, what attracts them to what they're addicted to, you know? Um, with a shopping addict, they might talk about hunting for bargains. The hunting is a trance state when you're hunting something. You narrow your focus of attention down. So it's escapism. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and um, you know, so, so that's what it's giving them. It's so funny. I always say that about shopping like i if shopping for me is not about buying things it is the escape of the process yeah. it is the shutting down and just being in the process and probably a little addiction to hope because you never know what you're going to find right. and there's this beautiful feeling that you never know what you're going to come across and that's really exciting and fun well well that's right and, and so that's that's um Another element to it, unreliable reward or intermittent reward, you know. So they found, I think it's B.F. Skinner, the, the um, you know, uh, behaviorist, found that with cats, that, that if you, if they pushed a, a lever, do you say lever in the States? A lever. 
Um, yeah, we say lever. Okay. You can say lever. We say lever. You, you say lever, I say lever. <laughs> that that, um, that if, if they always got food as a reward every time they pushed the lever, then um, they they wouldn't get addicted to that because it because it was some, if sometimes you do get reward and sometimes you don't, it becomes much more compulsive. So if someone's in an abusive relationship, for example, if someone's always nice to them, they can be too nice, you know. But if someone's horrible to you sometimes and sometimes nice, you really value the niceness. You know, we, we wouldn't value diamonds if they grew on trees, but because they're rare, we value them more. Mm-hmm. So we're more likely to become compulsively engaged with something that gives us an unreliable reward, you know. Um, but the cats would get addicted to the process of pushing the lever lever if um, once it, randomly it got rewarded for doing that, but not every time. It's the same with gambling. If every time you gambled, you won you know, a million dollars, then, then uh, although it would be quite useful for your bank balance, it wouldn't be that compulsive. But it's because it just might happen. This right. It's the same with bargain shopping as well. We uh, become addicted to, to something that doesn't always proffer us a reward. And people value the, the niceness of someone who's rough with them sometimes more mm-hmm. right or wrong perhaps than someone who's always reliably wonderful to them. That's so funny. I've never heard anybody talk about bargain shopping like that. And uh, you just like explained my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and, and lots of people's lives, you know, I mean, that's how, how it's said. And, and again, that, that's why um, marketeers will try to shut things down. They'll say, you know, for today only, there's a special offer. If that special offer was there all the time, then it wouldn't be rare. It wouldn't, you wouldn't feel like you got something, you know, hunted something down, although it's just given to you on a plate, really. But, um, yeah, so, so we can see the marketers, marketeers are onto this psychology of addiction. Yeah, and the scarcity. We call it scarcity yeah. in the marketing yeah. world. You want to instill that sense of scarcity mm-hmm. because you do. I think it is human nature that you will take things for granted, right? If it's available all the time, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You don't value it as much. It's like, oh, I don't need to worry about it today. I can do it yeah. tomorrow. It'll yeah. be there tomorrow. It'll be there next month. Mm-hmm. And then we we really appreciate something when it's no longer there. Interesting. And we wonder why we didn't appreciate it more. <laughs> yeah. It's human condition. Right. Which is how everybody feels about their, it's how everybody feels about their sobriety when they relapse. They're like, oh gosh, that was actually really good. I did actually really like being sober and I really appreciated how I felt when I was sober and I just want to get back there. That's right. And the the other thing about motivation is, or motivation to be, to engage in something that we're addicted to is that it's mediated by dopamine. Dopamine is a sort of you know, sort of reward chemical so, or, or it's a pathway in the brain, the dopamine pathway. And it's really there to help us engage in activities which are good for us. You get really thirsty on a hot day, you drink water and you get a sort of release of pleasure, you know, doing that. Or you eat or you rest when you're very hungry. So dopamine is, is trying to get you to fulfill needs which are there for survival or for learning. And it works in exactly the same way. So, for example, if, if you're learning a new guitar piece, you know, or on, on the piano, and uh, you master something, but eventually, uh, and it gives you some pleasure because it's the dopamine reward pathways have been sort of activated and, and fulfilled, but then you get habituation like you do with addiction. So now it's not enough to play that one piece and you need to learn another piece and so forth. And you need to learn more and more to get the same reward. And addiction hijacks that natural and healthy process 
But the other thing addiction does, or, or dopamine does, is it causes amnesia for negative consequences, which is why people can be, feel left feeling really stupid after they've gambled again when they said they wouldn't do it or drunk again after they said they wouldn't do it. Because before, when you start, when the, tr- the addictive trance descends on a person, it's all about motivating behavior and dopamine is produced and we're encouraged by our own systems to fulfill the expectation of the addictive trance. And dopamine-laced memories block out memories of the consequence of engaging in those addictive behaviors, if that makes sense. So we it's not that we don't know them, but... That darn dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> but but we, um, we just focus on the last time we parted and felt great. Or, or, or the excitement of going to the casino, or the um, the feeling of, of uh, going to the to the stores. You know, not that you need to do. I mean, you can do all of that online anyway. Um, that's all that's in in our mind when we're in the addictive trance state. So one of the things I do hypnotically with um, people who are addicted is I want to break that trance state before it gets started, and hypnotically train them to as soon as the trance descends to actually feel associated to the downsides of the behavior. So they're remembering how terrible they feel afterwards or how angry and disappointed their loved ones are when they've you know, spent $20,000 on something that they can't afford. So we're kind of using negative motivation as well as positive motivation when we're treating addiction because of this amnesia effect. Right. Yeah, that's so fascinating and, and so right on the money. I mean, it makes perfect sense in everything um, that I've seen certainly in all the years of my career and working in addiction, I didn't know that, that it had that amnesia effect and actually made you forget. So this is something that I've heard, you know, I'm a 12 step person. I got sober in AA and you hear all the time people say, well, you forget how bad it was. But for me, I never forgot how bad it was. Like even now, I just celebrated 17 years sober and I still to this day have never forgotten how bad it was. So how does that shift? Like for somebody like me that doesn't have that struggle, right? Like I, and maybe I've always assumed that I had a rock bottom moment that was fairly tragic and terrifying and it just really solidified like alcohol is no longer an option right. in my life. But I could never, even if I wanted to, I feel like I could never forget how bad it was. Not only the feeling in that rock bottom moment, but the feeling I felt every single day of my life when I woke up and the self-loathing and despising my life and being so sad that I even woke up because I just, it was so yeah. painful to think about how to get through a day, like I can never forget that. Yeah, I mean, it's um, we do that has to become larger that reality than than the pull. Right. And um, one thing I, I'll often do is talk to somebody about what the addiction has stolen from them. You know what, what it steals from them. So I'll use sort of metaphors and analogies, which hopefully stick in the mind. You know, I treated a, a smoker, a sixty-day smoker, and um, he stopped smoking, and then fifteen. Years later, he came back again and it started again when a friend had died. So you often find these areas of vulnerability in people and they start up again. He, he was a, a very adroit businessman and he was also owned property, you know, real estate. And he was, he was a, a landlord, you know, and I, and I 
built up the picture. I said, you know, well, I asked him about his tenants, you know, and then I talked about what would you do? How would you feel about one of your tenants not paying any rent? In fact, you paying them to be there. And then they begin to wreck the property from the inside. So the walls start to rot, everything's stained and destroyed. And in fact, because of what they're doing, the very foundations of the whole building are under threat. You know, what would you feel? Would that be a good deal? And he said, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't smoke anymore. Because of course, smoking is a tenant. It sits with inside, it nests in people. They pay for it to be there whilst it's wrecking the joint. And that's not a good deal. So I'll talk to smokers about the deal of smoking. You know, I've got a um, How to Stop People Smoking online course. And there's, there's some footage of me treating a smoker. And she says she does enjoy smoking. So I tell her, well, you know, I don't want to stop anyone doing what they enjoy. You know, I'm not a killjoy. So I say, you know, you should absolutely carry on smoking if the deal is worth it. Okay, if the deal is worth it, what do you get? You know, as opposed to what does it get? So we're personifying the addiction. So, well, she might. So, the, so what does it get first? Well, it, it might get 20 years of her life because she's already getting sick. It might get time spent with her grandchildren. It might get, or certainly will get, youthfulness because it steals youth. Um, it'll certainly get a lot, lots of her money as well. Um, it gets the oxygen into her eyes. It gets the, um, uh, the health of a trillion cells in her body. You know, so it gets an awful lot from the deal. So you need to more than quite enjoy it for the deal to be worth it. And I said, if you're singing from the rooftops, you know, orgasmically every time you smoke one puff of a cigarette, if it's the most meaningful thing in your life, um, if it's wonderful and, and it's the only thing that matters to you, then carry on smoking. And of course, so, so now we're laying it out bare for, for the person in, in an unusual way. And she kind of looked a bit shocked, and she said, especially when I said orgasm. And she said, um, she said, well, I, I don't enjoy it that much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but, but we, so really, it, it's 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 focusing on what it steals from you and what it takes. And you you you're in the privileged situation of working with addictions, so you can you can be reminded of, of what it stole from you, what it was stealing from you, what it took from you, day after day after day. So that you know it becomes bigger and bigger for you. So, so the amnesia amnesiac effects of the dopamine doesn't kick in anymore. You know, people are so attuned to the to the downsides. Yeah. Now you mentioned you mentioned your online program. So that was another one of my questions. Is this something you can do in an online capacity? What does that look like? And what are some of the other things hypnosis can be used for? Certainly, you can treat people online and train people online. We can use hypnosis for physical pain control, uh, motivation, childbirth, trauma. There's a specific technique called the rewind technique, which we use for trauma, which um, people, lots of people use without having learned hypnosis and wouldn't necessarily know that it was a hypnotic technique, but certainly it, it, it is. Yes, alcohol abuse, we can use hypnosis for. There, there was a surgeon in, in Ireland called Jack Gibson <clears throat> who did hundreds, maybe thousands of operations just using hypnosis as an anesthetic. But he, he um, also produced a cassette tape, so this is a while ago, um, of, uh, for alcoholics in Ireland. And one of the techniques he used was to give them the same uh, feelings of being drunk, pleasantly drunk, without alcohol, just hypnotically, which is a big reframe for, you know, it was a big reframe, I guess, because um, it helped them uh, experience 
the fact that they could meet the needs in healthy ways without necessarily doing anything that's bad for themselves, you know. So, so yeah, there, there are lots of applications of, of hypnosis. And what is the hypnosis process like? Like if I went on your website today and purchased a program, what is the process like? Right. Well, you, you'd have a, uh, there's a, it's simply you listening to it. So um, you download the um, audio and then you'd be encouraged to listen to it, you know, in a quiet place, not when you're driving <laughs> or operating heavy machinery um, or riding a horse. Um, then, um, then you simply listen to it, when, you know, relaxed in a, in a relaxed way, maybe two or three times a week until you start to notice a benefit. If you don't notice a benefit, then there's a three month, no questions asked guarantee as well. So, which you, and you could either swap it for another one or, or get a refund. So, um, yeah, it's as simple as that. And, and how long does it take for people to feel results or notice some results? So people vary. You know, some people are very uh, yeah. attuned to hypnosis and may uh, get results after the very first time. For other people, it might be more incremental. It might take a, a few weeks, a bit longer. Yeah, it, it, it is purely down to the individual. And when people see results, because I know when I did EMDR, it kind of took me a while to realize that I was having results. <laughs> it was in very subtle ways. So I like to point those things out for people to manage expectations because I don't want somebody to think they're going to do hypnosis and do it because we're addicted people, right? So you say do it two or three times a week. What my people are going to do is do it twice a day <laughs> and of course overdo it and then expect to have really fast results. And, and what their expectation is of a result is going to be different. You know, and what I noticed with EMDR is my responses to things were different. You know, something would happen that used to make me angry and I would just notice that I wasn't having that same response to it. You yeah. know, I felt some growth and a lightness where, you know, some weight had been lifted from me, but it was in very subtle ways in my day-to-day -day life. Oh. So all of that being said, could you give an idea of what people would see realistically as a result? We've got a, a uh, session called, uh, be calm with that person, you know. So sometimes people will have a particular person in their life that, that just winds them up the wrong way, you know. And um, so a result with that would be the next time you see them, you feel strangely calm or you feel in touch with your resources or you don't lose your head and, and feel rushed or pressured. You know, that would be indicative of, of a result, you know. Um, likewise, if someone uh, was going to the dentist they and they had a dental phobia before then then they'd feel calmer and more relaxed or they feel less if it's for drinking they feel less in, inclined to drink wine every night you know or drink less of it to start with and perhaps much less of it going forward so yeah th those are the sort of that's the sort of feedback that we get with with, with post-traumatic trauma um uh, i i would um prefer to see that one-on-one -on -one. we have downloads that sort of touch upon that but if it's a really heavy trauma then, uh, but you would expect results immediately. You know, the stronger the trauma, the more dramatic the change and the more immediate as well. You know, so it shouldn't be a process that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. It should be fast because the brain learns to be traumatized very quickly.
in, in, a, in a matter of a seconds of a bomb going off. So, you know, it, it shouldn't take months and months and months because the brain can learn quicker than that, you know, or, or unlearn the trauma. That. Right. So, um, yeah, we'd expect right. something like a very strong phobia or, or a, um, a very strong traumatic affect to be ameliorated you know, fast. Oh, I love that. Thank you again for coming on and having this conversation. This has been amazing. And I know my audience is loving this. <laughs> and for everybody listening, I will link Mark's website in the show notes so you can get there right from your podcast app, because I know you're all going to want to be buying some hypnosis now, for, <laughs> especially since he said for the problem person in your life that triggers you. I know half my audience is going to be buying that one. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much no, my pleasure thanks for having me on your show and uh, you know anytime in the future I'll be happy to talk to you as well you've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.